Welcome to Southern New Hampshire University's Social Sciences podcast, Agents of Change. Here we invite students and professionals to chat with us on topics of inclusion and diversity, student success, and their learning experiences. In this podcast, we will hear insights and personal accounts of people who have persisted against the odds and impacted positive social change. Join us as we learn how we can all be positive agents of change. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I am your host for this episode, Dr. Hector Garcia. Tonight's episode deals on the aftermath of critical incidents on police officers. Tonight, we have a special guest with us, Dr. Michael Evans. He is a certified force analyst and advanced force specialist from the Force Science Institute and an expert in use of force as it pertains to human performance factors during critical stress events. So he also serves as a use of force and law enforcement expert with his own company, Great Wolf Consulting, and he has provided services to many national and international corporations. So without further ado, welcome Dr. Evans to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, see and speak with you tonight. Well, this is great because we are bringing some light on a topic that is often overlooked in the public safety and the criminal justice area, and that is what happens after a critical incident. Specifically, what happens to the law enforcement officers and support members who have been involved in resolving this critical incident? So to shed some light on that, Dr. Evans, can you tell us, please, what is the nature and the frequency of law enforcement incidents, specifically critical incidents, that our fine and brave men and women of law enforcement may encounter during their job duties? Okay, critical stress events can cover a variety of things. Mitchell, 2016, defined it as any exposure experience of an officer-involved shooting, an accident, disaster, an assault on the officer, but really it's any event that creates the feeling of helplessness, helplessness, horror, shock on that officer. Uh, one thing that's often overlooked is a human element. Uh, body cameras seem to uh, desensitize us to violence. And law enforcement officers uh, throughout their career uh, can go on just what they consider a, the public considers a normal uh, call for service. Uh, even now we've had officers stop to help someone on the side of the road and uh, before they know it, they're in a shooting situation. So critical stress events can occur at any time within their career, any time they're out on calls of service. Uh, the biggest thing is the duration, frequency, and severity of that exposure. Um, some officers um, can go their whole career without having a critical officer-involved shooting, but that critical incident also can be going to a child death, going to a suicide, uh, it's not just when an officer is involved in shooting. It might also be responding to an officer that's been in a serious car collision and they know it. The call for help has been given out. Officers are trying to get there and you feel helpless because you can't get there fast enough. Uh, so critical stress events can occur at any moment in time and any frequency uh, within their career. Unfortunately, we're starting to see it a lot more, uh, a lot more occurrences now. Uh, due to the nature of uh, mental health situations occurring in the United States and other factors. 
Um, it is not something that's been unique. It's something that law enforcement officers have to realize when they enter this profession, you are going to be in critical stress events. It's what happens after that's really the main issue. Um, we can't, uh, control that frequency. We cannot control the severity and we have very limited ability to control the duration of their exposure to the event. So it creates an episodic stress. That's an acute long-term stress that has a lot of adverse effects, both mentally and physically on that officer and those that are around them. Uh, it's really creates what's called a spillover effect. So Dr. Evans, is that spillover effect akin to what us civilians would call a post-traumatic stress disorder? Or are, there, are the elements similar? Because what happens to the officers specifically after that critical incident? Similar characteristics? So uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is going to be common, but uh, what our listeners need to know is they have experienced critical stress events. The loss of a family member, a loss of a pet can be serious. Uh, my wife and I are very close to our dogs. They've ex actually experienced the same thing that law enforcement officers experience daily in their exposure. They just don't realize it. What I found in my studies is that most officers uh, start using alcohol as a way of coping. Uh, they also start to isolate themselves, not just from their cohorts at work, but from their spouse, their family, their friends, that isolation, the fear of sharing their story because no one will understand it. Uh, so the, the ironic thing is after a critical stress event, officers are purposely isolated in a lot of agencies to protect them from themselves because it takes about 96 hours for your brain to recycle itself and your frontal cortex begins to develop the ability to start having rational thoughts and the amygdala starts to disengage. So we see this with rape victims. They typically don't have a really in-depth um, forensic interview until about 96 hours after their event because your brain has to reset itself, so to speak. And you have to go through some sleep cycles in order for this to happen. And you've got to have really good REM sleep uh, in order for this to occur. And so we isolate the officers waiting for the whoever's going to investigate it. So we're protecting them, but then we're also starting that cycle of isolation. And so the officers really need to know why they're doing it, why they're being isolated, why they're being told they can only limit certain things to their family and information. Uh, so that's what we start to see after the event. Uh, increased use of alcohol because it's easy to get to and it's socially acceptable. It's socially acceptable for you to grab a drink and drink. No one's going to look, look uh, sideways, so to speak, on it. Also, uh, increased use of their prescribed prescription medications. Uh, they're going to start using that, intermixing it with alcohol. But that's what you'll see a lot of uh, alcohol, increased alcohol use, even for non-drinkers, increased alcohol use for those that do drink, use of prescription drugs that are lawfully obtained and sometimes unlawfully obtained, and the isolation. And then you combine all these factors into one and it creates a, casca a, a um, cascading effect. And that rippling effect creates a feeling of helplessness, a feeling of loss, and not understanding why you feel the way you do. And then you don't know how to fix it. 
You don't know how to dig yourself out of this hole that you've created both mentally and physically because you're not sleeping. You're uh, using alcohol to gain sleep. And so it's just, uh, again, compounding effect, cascading effect. Spillover, what I mean by that is that's where you take your problems home. We all know this. If you go to work one day and you're having a bad day at home, that's coming to work with you. In the world of law enforcement, the bad thing is you can't leave your problems in your car. That problem goes out and makes a bad rational decision on your part because you're sidetracked. Spillover effect is when these issues at work, this traumatic stress, critical stress, follows you home. It's now in your personal life. It's inundating your relationships with your wife, your friends, your children. And they're going to start to see that. And of course, that creates family problems, which again, creates more problems. And then they can bring it back to work. And this fluid motion of going back and forth is very detrimental to officers' mental health and their physical well-being. Yes, I can see where that is a vicious cycle that really just keeps going with the factors involved. One of the, the key points that I hear you saying is that isolation. And uh, I know that you've said that the officers have to be isolated uh, because of department rules and regulations and whatnot. But what sort of avenues or what options do officers have to deal with the consequences of being involved in these critical incidents? So for anyone that's been in law enforcement a long time, I've been there, been in law enforcement 25 years, reaching out for mental health was extremely frowned upon. Not only was it a shine of weakness because you were told, suck it up, go back to work. Um, I had several critical incidents uh, in the beginning of my career, um, one of which was a four-month-old was handed to me. A lady flashed her lights, handed me a four-month-old not breathing. Mm -hmm. Here I'm doing CPR. I'm, I'm a recent father. My son is almost the same age. And I hand the baby off to EMS. The young girl subsequently passes away and I'm right back on duty. Uh, that's the way it was. Luckily, through generational changes, through academic research like we have done, I have done, the ability to get mental health is not frowned upon. It's encouraged especially in a time where we have a lot of turnover from burnout, compassion fatigue, uh, that mental health is very helpful, but also reduces unnecessary use of force that results in the failure for duty to intervene, the duty to act, uh, the reduction of empathy. So the mental health, one thing um, that South Carolina does is that what's called the South Carolina Post-Critical Incident Seminar. Immediately after event, a chief or sheriff can ask the SC LEAP, which is South Carolina Law Enforcement Assistance Program, to come in. And what they'll do is they bring in people that have had like experiences. The number one issue that affects officers in the study that I performed for my PhD was the loss of a child. The death of a child or serious harm of a child was the number one factor in causing issues uh, for critical stress. Think about the officers that not only just investigate child pornography or child crime, but also have to prosecute it. The exposure of having to watch the videos and then take it to court, that's just even compounding it more. So what will happen is SE League brings in officers with like experiences and they have a critical debrief right there. Usually lasts about a day 
and it's a, a circle, no command staffs allowed in there. It's just the officers. They get to share their story. And interesting, everyone tells what they did and what happened because you might be handling one thing, I'm handling another, but because our ability, our situational awareness, or situational blindness, we can't partake in all the information we're seeing, I might miss something that you saw. So we're getting all these questions answered. And from that, immediately debriefing, they are allowed or asked to, if they want to go to what's called a South Carolina PCIS, it's a three-day process in which they actually tell their story on the first day. There's mental health professionals there. There's mental health professionals do EMDR, which is eye movement reprocessing, uh, desensitization. Uh, they don't take the memory away, but they put it in the right order in your life where it needs to be. There's clergy there if you need help in a religious aspect. And then one of the other things is you have peer team members. They break them down in small peer team members and they bring them together and they talk and they share. And this three day event includes the spouse or the significant other if they want to come. Uh, so everyone is together. So if my wife came, there's other wives there that have experienced the same thing. So they can talk about it. Uh, tremendous success. It's so successful. Um, it started in the late 90s from a grant, and it mirrored the FBI's program, Pure Team program. It's now in 13 other states and serves as a blueprint for these states, for the PCIS. Uh, extremely successful. Um, even the Pure Team members that participate in it uh, have great success because they always have access to mental health professionals because of what they do. So even though they're having to relive their story over and over again and share it, it actually helps them cope with this because they have constant access to the program. So access to mental health professionals is key. The ability to talk to them, but now you're talking to a group of people that understand where you've been. Uh, one of uh, my study participants explained that she serves as a peer team member. And after the second day, one of the students came and said, that's the first time I've slept in 146 days since my incident. I was able to sleep for the first time. One couple even said they went on a date for the first time since their incident and has been about six months. So you already start to see the reset of their lives and it doesn't take away the harm that was caused. It just puts it in an order in a way they can handle it better. They give them tools. They give them uh, methods to address the post-traumatic stress, the anxiety, the fear, uh, all these things that just can compound and overwhelm a normal person's coping mechanism. We only acquire coping mechanisms through our life experiences. And we've learned this from our combat vets. You can have seasoned special forces operators come back with traumatic stress disorder. You can only do so much to the human body is overwhelmed. And it's the same for law enforcement. Fascinating. Um, that, that South Carolina was uh, ahead of that curve with that grant from the FBI to provide such a wonderful program and hearing those success stories, uh, even of the gentleman who couldn't sleep for 146 nights, uh, that's, that's, you know, a third of a year. Uh, I'm talking about almost four months just without being able to get a good night's sleep is something that's very serious. Uh, we don't even know how he operated at, at all levels. So these programs are essential because, as we mentioned earlier, or as you mentioned earlier, there was 
And there still may be a stigma associated with a first responder actually stepping out and seeking mental health services. Um, I myself was a police officer for 34 years, and I know that stigma was there. And so in today's day and age, has that stigma been fully removed or are we still working towards that? We are still working towards that. And I don't believe at any point there will be the removal completely of the stigma. That is just ingrained in the type A personality or the personalities that enter law enforcement. Uh, of course, you have the, the ones that believe this is the way we've done it. This is the way we always should do it. Uh, back in my day, we had a beer or a drink when we went back to work. Even as they age out, they've trained somebody. And what happens is if you have poor leadership or inadequate leadership training, then how are your new leaders learning how to be leaders? And a lot of leadership agencies, like a lot of programs now, a lot of academies, post-academies, certifications, a lot of private vendors provide high quality leadership training. And one of the factors of leadership is taking care of your people. It's going to get more acceptable to seek mental health profession or mental health professionals, but I don't think it's going to be completely removed. What's interesting is when agencies take the time and say, look, you need mental health professional, uh, you need mental health intervention. I don't want you to lose your job. You're not going to lose your job, but we need to send you for help. And then that agency sends you for help and they pay the tab or they pay your copay. Whatever your insurance doesn't pay, they're paying the copay. There's agencies out there that are doing this because if you have an officer that's suffering a mental health crisis, you're responsible for that person's care. And you want to reduce the, the possibility of officer suicide. But also it goes back to, unfortunately, a good business model. If you care for that person, you show they care for them, that loyalty to that per the agency still is increased, but also you're going to reduce that compassion fatigue. You're going to reduce that burnout, which is so critical in people leaving our career field and they're going to want to stay. But also more importantly, they're going to be better officers. That empathy is going to be there. And then we're going to create that cycle where there's officers that have been through this, that are now leaders that can see the signs before we go down the road where the officer's lost or they use force inappropriately or make a bad decision that costs them their lives or life of a civilian. So all around, it's best for all the community as a whole to realize that even law enforcement, we're not superheroes. We are affected by life. We are affected by stress. We're affected through the duration, frequency and severity of that stress. And the more stress we're exposed to, eventually it's going to overwhelm our coping systems. And if we don't understand that they need help, we're just setting ourselves up as failures for as agencies. You know, and, and Dr. Evans, you made a great point there about police officers or people like anyone else. I remember a time when I was an officer, a young officer, and, and I had one of my kids with me. We were walking through the mall and... Someone, a citizen, saw me and that I had run into. And later on, the citizen said, you know, I, I was surprised to see you in the mall without your uniform walking around with a small child. 
And I said, yes, I'm off duty and I'm walking around with one of my children, just like anybody else. She goes, oh, but you're a police officer. So that I never forgot that incident because based on what you just said now, some folks think that, you know, we're just a different type of, of personalities and people out there and we can take all this and work with all this trauma and not be affected by it. And it's actually not the truth, as you mentioned. And I'm glad that there are programs that are helping out. And so with that in mind, I'd like to ask you, what does the future hold? What is your aspect that you've conducted extensive studies on this? How do you feel that the future is going to pan out for these officers that are involved in these critical incidents? Are we seeing, are we going to see an improvement decline, static. What do you think the future holds? Well, the example you gave was fantastic. Um, and you'll know this is we're, we're a uniform. Um, I can't count on my hands how many times I've seen someone I arrested and literally stood next to him in line the next day out of uniform and they didn't even know who I was. Uh, so it's, it's, that's a great example of that. I think our future is bright. I think that with the studies that are being performed, the programs that are being created, this is really sharing a lot of information. Podcasts like you're doing here, it's not only going to get the information out, but it's going to get the information to the future law enforcement professionals that are going to enter our career. You can't make changes unless you know there's a problem. But one of the things you have to understand is you guys can't give a problem. You need to provide solutions. And the solutions are out there through programs like the South Carolina Post-Critical Incident Seminar and similar ones that are throughout the nation. The biggest thing we have to realize is we have to get the community involved. Our community partnerships are paramount. We have to realize that we are part of the community just as those that we police. Without that partnership and that understanding, then most programs are going to suffer at some point in time, either monetarily, getting support from their legislators or their local town officials or through the loss of officers. But I think our future is bright. I think that with the new generational beliefs coupled with better leadership training, uh, studies that are being done, podcasts and information that we're pushing out, it's removing the stigma of seeking mental health. And it's not something that always requires medication. Sometimes it just requires a shoulder to talk on or so to speak, shoulder to cry on, someone to open up and vent to. So I think our future is very bright in law enforcement. Unfortunately, if it's not, we're going to suffer in more ways than our society realizes. We are facing a national crisis in, in staffing nationwide, small departments, big departments. Used to be about 10% of law enforcement officer agencies were having officer shortages. Now they're 20-25%. That ability affects the quality of life that we can provide for our citizens. So everything that we can do to help our officers that in turn improve their mental health also improves their relationship with our community. So I think our future is bright. I think there's a lot of hope as long as we stay in the direction of realizing that police are human beings. They need help. Body camera is a sterile witness to violence that most people will never experience or see in their lives. It was used for transparency without someone properly explaining what's occurring. 
And agencies have to realize, uh, let me back up on that one, understanding what they're seeing, they might realize that it's legally allowed, but socially unacceptable. Uh, so the days of officers using batons, uh, it just has horrible optics, still a valuable tool, but that's where the taser came into effect. But could you have verbally de-escalated that event? If you're not in the right mental faculties because you've suffered a critical stress and you are in a spiral going down, you're going to rapidly escalate and then there's no turning back because that sterile camera cannot capture emotions. That sterile camera cannot capture the fear or the intent of that officer. It's just a witness that's providing a neutral viewpoint, but it lacks a lot of information that is possessed by the person interacting with law enforcement and that officer interacting with that person. Yes, Dr. Evans, well said. And the key to that is awareness and leadership capabilities of leaders to recognize that within their people, early warning systems, uh, anonymous hotlines, EAPs, employee assistance programs of that nature and to build that strong bond with the community. Sir Robert Peel said the police are the public and the public are the police. What he meant to say was we're all in this together. So very good. Dr. Evans, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. We really appreciate all these insights into what's going on out there, things that we are seeing on the news and television and the aftermath of a critical incident that we have often not pondered. So what happens to the officers involved in this and what is the aftermath of the critical incident. Thank you for shedding light on this and for bringing us such valuable information to help us form better opinions and better relationships with our law enforcement community. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Um, it's been wonderful to share the experience and it's, it's, it's exciting to know that people want this information. They want to know the human side of it. Because without that humanity within this career, it is hard to do it. Yes, sir. Well said. And thank you again for joining us and providing such expertise and such firsthand information and knowledge on this very important topic that hopefully has enlightened many of our listeners as to another side of the things that they see or hear about in society regarding critical incidents and how they are handled. So thank you again. This is Dr. Hector Garcia, and I have been your host for this episode of Agents of Change, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Southern New Hampshire University's Agents of Change, a social sciences podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us, and be on the lookout for more exciting episodes. Goodbye for now.